Good to be with you guys. Uh, I, I always say I'm not going to make a comment about the weather every time I see you, but I can't resist. This weather is awesome. Like, this is amazing. Uh, complaints downloading, right? Or loading? They're coming. I'll complain when it's 120, but this is amazing. I, we opened up, we turned our air off. Our air conditioning actually went off. We didn't turn it off. What am I saying? It went off. And I panicked. Like, I was like, we are in trouble. I'm very light-skinned, very big. Like, I'm going to sweat all night. But we could open the doors, and the wind was blowing through. This is awesome. Um, You guys doing well? Okay. Uh, All right, strap in. Three months of Sundays from the book of Exodus. No escape. Here we go. (laughs) It's, It's not nearly enough time. But it'll, it'll be good. Uh, I, I, think, I think we'll hopefully uh, have some confrontations with the Lord through this very old part of uh, the Christian Bible. Um, so I've given, I've given a title for today's uh, lesson, um, and it's an inscription on the Swiss philosopher George Young. You know this name? Uh, uh, it's on his gravestone. It's on his tombstone. And it says in Latin, uh, bidden or not bidden, God is present. Amen. This is the idea that it may seem like there are seasons where God has abandoned us. Uh, but, or, or even there are seasons when we refrain from crying out or addressing or responding to what God is doing in our lives or addressing God at all. But that does not conjure him up just because we think of him and begin to speak to him. And I think what what this phrase gets at, what I think our text for this afternoon gets at, is what we mean by this phrase Christians use on a regular basis. Though it's not just Christians. Uh, But we say, God is really working. You familiar with this? God is really working. Now think for a moment. When do you say that God is really working? When you can see it. And you usually only see it when it's happy for you. (laughs) You only see it when it's the sort of outcome that makes sense to you. We say, oh boy, God is really working. We say, okay, uh, we had a large crowd at church yesterday. God is really working. I just got a new job. God is really working. How about this? I haven't sensed God for months. God is really working. (laughs) Would you say that? I think the text is trying to teach us to say that. There are long seasons within the, the story of Scripture where the people of God, we might call it a drought. We imagine when we're reading the Bible that it's this seismic activity, nonstop. You turn a corner and bam, something amazing's happened. And you turn back again and oh my goodness, something amazing again. But that's not exactly how life was. There are long seasons where people are actually saying things like, God, how long? You've abandoned us. That's the experience in the life of faith. And if we say it's not, we're not paying attention because the very texts that we claim to learn from are are describing that reality. 
Sometimes it feels like God is far off. That's normal. That's normal. The challenge is, bidden or not bidden, to see that God is always working. And maybe see isn't the right language. Because we might not see what God is always up to. I've had an encounter with this recently just through... Uh, you know, through going to therapy and kind of traipsing back through my past and my wounds, I've had, <laughs> I've had some uh, moments of clarity recently. Um, I remember, and I've probably talked about this before y'all had also indulged me, but I remember uh, discovering, my wife and I, that we were unable to have children. And I think I forgot what a terrible time that was. Holy cow, was that difficult. What made it more difficult, and I think I've shared this before, is that all of our friends were receiving the news that they're pregnant. And I remember going to gatherings. It was like six families. They were all like expecting with child. And they're talking through when we're getting together for a barbecue. We did a lot of barbecuing in Wisconsin. Even if it was, you know, negative sub-zero temperatures, we're still at the grill making Bratwurst are a thing in Wisconsin. I don't know, is that, do you guys know about bratwurst? Do you guys know about cheese curds? Oh, what a shame. Uh, we'll, we'll get around to that. Um, but I remember being at these events and, you know, the women are talking about what they're going to do with the new room for the baby and what's it going to be like to be a mom or what's, you really understand God when you're a dad. And I'm thinking, me and my wife are sitting there like, okay, this is awful, like, I'm glad y'all are excited, but don't bring that child around us. I don't want to see it because it was painful for us. I remember not being able to imagine that something good could come from a season that it felt like you could feel like you're cursed. I don't think I felt that, but I felt like it wasn't God's will for me. Well, cut to a few years later, I have this beautiful little girl in our home And if I were able to reverse things and somehow be able to magically have a child biologically, I would not choose to do so. But it's only in hindsight, looking back, that I can say, oh, wow, God was doing something for our family that I I could not have comprehended in my pain back then. So part of this idea of learning that God is present and active comes by waiting and trusting. Because there will be a moment where we're on the other side and we look back and our jaws will drop. We'll marvel at what God has done. But that's what that's what this first chapter and a half of Exodus is all all about. Uh, Now, Exodus, just quick run through some of like the details. Some of them are helpful. Probably others of them don't matter that much. But but just so we know where we're at within the Bible. Second book of the Bible. Uh, it's a part of a, a collection of books uh, known as the Pentateuch or Torah. Five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, uh, these, these books are written except for a few lines in Genesis. There's some Aramaic. It's all Hebrew. 
Um, and in Hebrew, the title of these books are not Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And Numbers is really misnamed in English. Uh, but in, in Hebrew, it's much simpler process of naming books. You take the first or second word of the book, and that's the name of the book. So Genesis begins Bereshit bera. So you call this book Bereshit. Exodus begins Ve'ele Shemot, which means these names, these are the names. So you call the book Shemot. Uh, now in English it's Exodus. Uh, Leviticus, the first words are Vayikra el Moshe. He says, come here, Moses. So the book is called, in Hebrew, Vayikra. But it's in these titles for the book in Hebrew suggest something that in English we miss. And that is that it's a story. In fact, when we come to the end of the book of Exodus, we are really, in a sense, nowhere. We are forced into the book of Leviticus. I know that's what you wanted to hear today, <laughs> that you're going to have to make a journey through Leviticus. But it's picking up that exact Story, And that's exactly what we have with Exodus. For the first seven verses, if we'd read the book that came before it, Genesis, we'd realize we're on very, very familiar ground. But the ground shakes and moves pretty quick, as you'll see. Um, but Exodus, Exodus has a number of themes running through the book. Um, but really... The first part, we're going to be talking about this for several weeks, is God delivering his people. Salvation comes, deliverance, liberation comes to God's people when they're actually, it seems like, have really lost a thought that that could even happen. But it makes an appearance. Then comes this summons to an identity and a calling and a way of life, and laws which will show the goodness of God in their lives. But Exodus is really focusing on God bringing out a people, not just so he could say, well, you're free now, have a nice life, but to bring them into relationship with him. One of the major questions in Exodus is, and we could probably have called the title of the sermon series this, Whom Shall Israel Serve? Because the question is not at the end of the day, will we serve someone? The question is, whom shall you serve? Will it be Pharaoh in his empire building in Egypt, forced to build a city that doesn't really help them? Or will it be Service to the Lord. And the same word is used in Hebrew. You shall either serve one God or the other. Paul picks up on this idea quite a bit. The Apostle Paul. He's talking about the Christian life. We will serve one of two masters. The dirty little secret is Israel is for the Lord. They are created for his purposes in the world. Which makes what we're going to see really heartbreaking. Um, so, yes, okay, let's just, let's run into it. Um, now these are the names of the children of Israel coming to Egypt uh, with Yaakov. Each man in his household, they came. Okay, now these are the names. These are the names of the people. What names? Well, we just read about this in Genesis. In fact, 
The people of Israel, Abraham's children, are in Egypt, not because someone came and bullied them and took them captive. Egypt was actually salvation for them because there was a famine throughout their land and they made their way down through some real family dysfunction. They found themselves in Egypt. And actually, they say, yeah, God was doing that. We didn't realize our sin was actually setting up a future for us so that when the bread ran out back home, we could make our way down into Egypt and be safe. So Egypt is this place of life, of bread, of sustenance. And Israel flourishes in Egypt. So, so far, we don't really think of Egypt necessarily as what it will become later, a house of bondage or a burning furnace (laughs) that steals your life. But these are the names, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, Yisakar, Zevulun, Binyamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So all the persons, those issuing from Yaakov's loins were 70 persons. Yosef was already in Egypt. Now Yosef died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, yet the children of Israel bore fruit, they swarmed, they became many, they grew mighty in number exceedingly, yes, exceedingly, the land filled up with them. Did Israel grow in Egypt? (laughs) My goodness, we get the point. You could have just said they grow. But, But this is intentional. So far, so good. It's kind of like we're lulled into this wonderful continuation of the story of God calling a people to be a blessing to the rest of the world. He brings them to Egypt and they're just exploding and flourishing growth all over the place. Now, this this verse, verse seven here, is actually it's like the author has taken a bunch of verses from Genesis and did like, what do you call it? Is mashup still a thing? Like remix? Like it took them all and gathered them together, sampled from all parts of Genesis, and made a statement about what's going on in Egypt. Now, right at the beginning of the Bible, God makes human beings. And the first thing he does is he blesses them. And he tells them to rule and subdue and fill the earth. It's the, the, the first blessing in Scripture to human beings from God is that they would fill the land, that they would have a lot of sex. They'd get married and they'd have a lot of sex and fill the place with little image bearers who will all be raised by image bearers and create this world that is buzzing with the goodness and glory of God, indications around every corner, every human population, reflection of the divine's wisdom and love. But then things don't go well, and we have the story of Noah's Ark, which is really a sad and horrifying moment in the story. I'm not convinced we should be teaching our young children this part of the Bible so soon. Uh, but, but we have on the other side of this flood God telling Noah and his family, who are far from perfect people, flourish, fill the earth, 
says it in Genesis 9, verse 1 to Noah and in verse 7. A little later he calls Abraham and he makes the same promise to him. Flourish. Fill the land. Okay, but here's the thing. In, Gen- in Exodus, we've read seven verses and God has not shown up yet. Right? You didn't see anything about God yet. We're not going to see much about God all day today. But look, if you learn to read what the author's saying, it's one of these. You see? See that? Look at how they're growing. You see, the blessing is at work. It's hundreds of years later. That initial family, those 70 people that trekked down to Egypt for food, they've all died. Any influence they had in Egypt, those people have died. But look, the blessing is working. Hundreds of years down the line, a famine has produced a safe place where God's people could flourish. Make sense? So, so far, so good. Nothing is really in jeopardy in terms of what God has wanted to do with this people. In fact, we're kind of like, this is great. Except a new king arose over Egypt who had not known Yosef. Yosef was that younger brother who, who they sold into uh, into Egypt, and he rose to power, and he's the reason why they had an opportunity to move to Egypt, because he had a lot of influence there. But he's dead. And this new king said to his people, here, this people, the children of Israel, is many more and mightier in number than we. Come now, let us use our wits against it, lest it become many more. And then, if war should occur it too be added to our enemies and make war upon us or go up away from the land. So they set gang captains over it to afflict it with their burdens. It built storage cities for Pharaoh, Pithom, and Ramses. So a new king, what do new kings do when they get in power? What do new leaders do? They do this too, of all sorts. We like to make a name for ourselves, like to show everybody that we mean business. And it might have been like that under the previous regime, but now there's a new king in town. And I do not know Joseph. And he says to his people, Hine, look, look at this people. He sees what we as Christian readers see, which is this people is flourishing. But he has a much different takeaway from that reality. He, it doesn't, the text doesn't say he's scared, but come on. I mean, this guy's panicking. He sees something that we know God is doing, but he, he says, this is a threat. This is dangerous for our way of life. These foreigners there's more of them here than there are of us, and this is our land. And we've got to control this now so that these people don't take over. And if we ever get into war, they don't like us, they resent us, so they go join the other nations and they clobber us. You see the panic, the culture of anxiety? Nothing's even happened, yet this king is scared to death about what's going on. Where does this fear 
come from? Well, certainly it comes from preserving a certain way of life or a vision of the good life for his people, right? We've got to take care of Egypt first. We have to take care of ours first. This is really interesting. Are you okay? Joseph, when he comes into Egypt, he rises. This is one of his, an Israelite. He rises to power. But if we go and read what he does with the Egyptians, he's not that great of an economist. He makes, he makes some bad policies. And he actually puts Egypt in a place where they lose their shirt for money. And now we find maybe some of that legacy of how Joseph really strengthened the centralized government in Egypt, making it so that if you wanted bread, you had to go to the empire and get it there and sell your life for food. I'm not blaming Joseph, but I'm saying his moves created a situation where you had this like over-engorged empire, this political thing, and they want to preserve that way of life. And so what do they do to these foreigners? They set gang captains over them. Now, I don't know exactly what enslaving these Israelites does to keep them at peace. But his notion of bringing stability and putting and dealing with threats is violence and dehumanization and slavery. His way of not being anxious is to subjugate a whole people. And we as readers gasp because we're like, these are Abraham's children. Does he know who he's messing with? (laughs) Does he know why they're growing so much? Does he understand what he's doing? Uh, But as they afflicted it, it meaning Israel... So did it become many, so did it burst forth, and they felt dread before the children of Israel. So the more they tried to steal away the vitality of this community, I don't know what the thought is, if we keep them busy, they won't make love to their spouses, and they won't have kids, I guess, and that's how we control the population. Well, that kind of works. How many of you have had jobs that that demand your soul. If you give your life to the company, you'll be happy, but you will have no time for yourself. See, his move is to run these people ragged, to exhaust and offer no break, no vacation package, no benefits. They belong. They are property of the state. And they will control their population by stealing away any creativity, any vitality. They will be just barely able to breathe. And that brings some assurance to this new king, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, by the way, is a title, not a name. It's just the Egyptian word for great house. But it's just a title. They don't even dignify in the text this king with a name. He's just the great house. Look at how the great house deals with his anxiety. He subjugates people. 
But the more energy he put into stealing away their ability to thrive, the more they thrived. And again, we're thinking, I don't see God coming to stop any of this. That makes sense. What's happening here seems to be the blessing upon them from their God. The more they work against what God is doing, the worse it is. And look at this. What is an anxiety turns into an impending sense of doom. Now we dread what's going to happen. What are we supposed to do? The more policies I put in place to keep them quiet, the worse it is for all of us, the more of them there are around us. What do you do in that situation? Well, you could say, let's just trust God, but there ain't no way the empire is going to do that. There ain't no way they're just going to sit back and say, maybe God's doing something here. No way. We've got to deal with this. Let's read on. So they, Egypt, made the children of Israel subservient with crushing labor. They embittered their lives with hard servitude in loam and in bricks and with all kinds of servitude in the field, all their service in which they made them subservient with crushing labor. Now look at this, this phrase. This is another quotation from Genesis 15. But look, look at the word that keeps coming up. Subservient, servitude, servitude, service, subservient. It's the same word in Hebrew, avad, avad. That's the word here. It's actually also the same word for worship in the Bible. You see, these people are meant to serve, worship Yahweh, their God. But this king has forced them to be subservient to the empire. Whether they like it or not, the property of the state. But this is a problem. Because now we're watching. Now I am asking, where is God? You're forcing the promised people. God's vehicle of blessing for all creation can barely breathe under the foot of the great house, the Pharaoh. Nahum Sarna puts it this way. What we are dealing with here is state slavery. They organized imposition of forced labor upon the male population for long and indefinite terms of service under degrading and brutal conditions. So the men, the men so conscripted received no reward for their labors. They enjoyed no civil rights and their lot was generally much worse than that of a household slave. Organized in large work gangs, they became an anonymous mass, depersonalized, losing all individuality in the eyes of their oppressors. My point is for you to not read past what's happening. This is ugly. This is bad. And it sets the stage for what the rest of the Bible is about. The empires of man treating creation like it belongs to them. God wants them to flourish. This king wants to control their population. He is setting himself up as an opponent of the creator by these decisions. He's stealing away what doesn't belong to him, as if the world is his, and he could do whatever he wants with anyone. 
But I love that Nahum Sarna has said a depersonalized. It's dehumanizing. They're just the Israelite work. They're just the Israelite help. They're slaves. They're property. We don't, we don't tend to realize what we're looking at here is, is a big problem based on what we saw God would do. And yet, where the heck is God? Why not stop this dead in its tracks? Now the king said to the midwives of the Hebrews, the name of the first one was Shifra, and the name of the second was Pua. It's interesting that they get names, but the king doesn't. He said, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, see the supporting stones. If he be a son, put him to death. But if she be a daughter, she may live. But the midwives held God in awe, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them. They let the male children live. Look at this. It's moved from crushing labor to getting into the hospital system and saying when the Hebrew women come in to give birth, if you see that it's a boy, you kill that thing on the spot. It's your job. Your country has asked this of you. But these women, Shifra and Pua, these little, uh, presumably Hebrew, though some wonder if they're Egyptian. I think they're Hebrew. These are Hebrew names. Uh, these, these women in their civil disobedience, because they fear God, as the text says, refuse to listen to the command they were given. Kill those kids. Now what they're doing is like, you're undermining your country. You're not doing what's been asked of you. You see two kinds of fear at work in this story now. You have the fear of the empire, right? And you have the fear of these little doulas, is that what they are, like a midwife, right? Two women. And they refuse. There's a line in the Acts of the Apostles where the apostles say, judge for yourself whether it's right for us to obey you rather than God. Something like that. They're willing to put their neck on the line and break laws. Oh, and then watch this. They're about to lie about it too. We teach our kids they should lie. The king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? You have let the children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, uh, Indeed, not like the Egyptian women are the Hebrew women. Indeed, they are lively. Before the midwife comes to them, they have given birth. And God dealt well with the midwives. And the people became many and grew exceedingly mighty in number. It was since the midwives held God in awe that he made them households. Now Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son that is born, throw him into the Nile, but let every daughter live. See how the, the Pharaoh's tightening the screws more and more on Israel? Still, where is God? Where is God? Well, I at least see God in these two women, Right? God is doing something through this risky lying to the king. Why are you letting those kids live? Oh, I don't know. They give birth really fast. It's, but we get there and the kids are already out. We don't even get time to like prep, 
or just, what do they call it, scrub in or whatever. We get no time. Before we get there, there's a baby. What are we supposed to do? They're out of there. They checked out. They went home. What a lie. They know that what they're doing, it doesn't matter what the king thinks. They're not going to capitulate to the empire just because they have a human kind of power. You see, their fear is not in whether or not the empire will do well. Their fear is almost more like trust. It's looking to God. It's an utterly different way of construing the situation. But you know what Pharaoh does? I don't know if he bought that garbage that they give birth to fast, but what he does is instead of making a policy in the Oval Office, he goes and he tells all his people, if you see a young Hebrew kid, grab it and throw it in the water. Drown that thing. Now imagine, it's public policy. (laughs) Imagine you're a new mom and you've got your baby boy. And you know, not just the authorities, your Egyptian neighbors, if they catch you, you better hide your kids because they are going to kill them because the empire is afraid and they don't want you around here. And they, they want you around here, but they want you here in a way that benefits them. Or I should say him, the great house. But you see how he's tightening the screws more and more. This guy is cruising for a bruising, (laughs) as they used to say. You don't get to treat people like this. Okay, how you doing? A few more minutes, a few more lines. You'll see how this folds out, uh, shakes out. Okay, now a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi, And the woman became pregnant and bore a son. When she saw him, that he was goodly, she hid him for three months. It's really interesting. In Hebrew, it says when she saw the baby, it says, It it was good. That's hearkening back to the creation story where God creates and he says, God saw that it was good. This mother hiding this child that she's not supposed to have, she sees him, she says, this kid, it's good. It's a way of the author saying, this is a creation story. It doesn't stop there. When she was no longer able to hide him, she took for him a little ark of papyrus. Ark. It's the same word for ark in Noah's ark. Another way of saying, remember when that family came through the water and God saved them? Yeah, stay tuned. This little kid also will be a part of a deliverance through water. It's a creation story. Under the threat of the empire, what is unfolding just beneath the radar, just beneath the surface, this little Hebrew child is being set up as a brand new creation story. And the empire thinks they're scared now. Just wait. And when she was no longer able to hide him, she took for him a little ark of papyrus. She loamed it with loam and with pitch, placed the child in it, and placed it in the reeds by the shore of the Nile. Now his sister stationed herself far off to know what would be done with him. Okay, how you doing? All the sermons won't be this much info, I promise. Puts this child that's called good into an ark 
among the reeds in the water. Now, and then Miriam, his sister, is there watching to see what happens. Keep that in your mind about three weeks from now. We're going to be right back at the Sea of Reeds with Moses' sister. Bookmark that. It's anticipating something huge here. Now, Pharaoh's daughter, this is amazing. Pharaoh's daughter, the great house's daughter, went down to bathe at the Nile, and her girls were walking along the Nile. She saw the little ark among the reeds and sent her maid, and she fetched it. She opened it and saw him. The child, here, a boy weeping. She pitied him. And she said, one of the Hebrews' children children is this. Now his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call a nursing woman for the Hebrews from the Hebrews for you that she may nurse this child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. The maiden went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Have this child go with you and nurse him for me, and I myself will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and she nursed him. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She called his name Moshe. She said, for I pulled him out of water. Unbelievable. This daughter of the great king goes down to take a bath at the river, finds this little ark, which is placed there by this terrified mother just hoping something else could happen rather than being drowned. Just a prayer, a shot in the dark. She can't keep him hidden anymore. He's crying too loud. He's going to get killed either way. So it's kind of a punt. Maybe God will do something. And here comes the king's daughter. And you've got to imagine the sister watching like, this is it. Now I'm going to watch my little brother be drowned right in front of me. And this daughter of the king, by compassion recognizes it's a Hebrew kid. Her dad would be so disappointed in her. If the king's family ain't going to keep the laws, who's supposed to? The daughter's undermining everything her dad's trying to do. And she has compassion. She says, look, it's a Hebrew boy. And here's the, here's the daughter, the, the sister. I don't. Do you have milk? Because... I can find a Hebrew woman with, with milk that can nurse that child for you. She says, yeah, go get someone. I have just the woman in mind. <laughs> and he goes and brings the child's mother. Now the mother has her child back and is protected by the king's daughter. The princess has assured her. Not only that, she's collecting a paycheck to take care of this kid. It's amazing what compassion will drive somebody to do. But check this out. She is undoing the empire by this act of compassion. Boy, did she pick the wrong kid to pity. Because this child, Moses, will grow up to to come through the water in a way that's even more significant than this. He will lead these slaves that they're terrified about to liberation. But it's these women. Where is God? We say God is really working. Do you think if you were with some of them, you'd say God is really working? You'd say, where is God? 
that God is working. See that kid in the, in the bushes over there that was put there by this woman who had, she was desperate. And you see that princess over there who you thought would kill the kid. You see all these women, these midwives taking these risks and lying and throwing off what the, what the king says because they see a different way possible. Do you see all that? That's how God works in this situation. That's what God is up to. These risks. What drove these women to so disobey what's in front of them? I'm not trying to tell you to go disobey your country. But what I'm saying is, we can tend to place the authority in the wrong places. And there are moments and times in our life where we just accept the way things are because we were told that's how it is and it's in the interest of all of us. But those of us who see dehumanizing, and I don't want to spiritualize this like it's sin or something like that. No, these people were suffering physical harm. We see stuff. We, we participate in ways I don't even think we know. But we, we can tend to get weak need. What, what do they say? What do they do to us if we put God first? What would happen if we had so much compassion on a situation that we're told not even to be compassionate about because it's a threat? What would happen? Would God work? We might lose our reputations at our jobs for taking these kinds of risks, right? I might lose my reputation within the church. But this, this is why Israel is so emphatic about the Sabbath. Rest. They, won't, they understand. In fact, in Deuteronomy, when he commands the Sabbath, he said, remember what it was like for you. The way it ran you ragged and stole your breath away from you. That's not how it's to be under service of the Lord. There's this summons to a way of life that may at times come at odds with the busy lives we keep and the things we accept. I'm not trying to make any grand point here. I'm just saying, look at what faith looks like. When you don't see God doing something great, look again. Look at people making little steps. Look at Erica, what she's doing at CVRM, going out there and sharing her journey with people who are desperate. Look in your own home. There's, there's probably acts of faith all around us which undermine the American way of life just by being compassionate and focused on others. Now, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. But this is just a preamble to something much bigger. Next week we're going to meet Moses and what God's going to actually show up in a very exciting manner. But this is actually the same story at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. The first couple of chapters of Matthew, there's another king who's frightened about Israelites. His name is Herod. And he goes around killing a bunch of young kids too, looking for Jesus from Nazareth. And we see how that king too is undermined 
And Jesus will again stand before Pilate. And we see the big Jesus before the governor of Rome. Pax Romana, right? Peace of Rome. We make you have peace with a sword and with our mighty arm. And here we see this Israelite Jewish king bleeding, gushing blood, beat to death, standing before the power of Rome. And we need to see carefully who's the actual power. Pilate, Herod, Pharaoh, they're all measly, powerless little creatures compared to the great God. They will be undermined by things as simple as a princess not keeping the law or a Jewish Messiah going to the cross when they threaten his life. God is always at work to do something that's far bigger than I think we we tend to look for. I'll, I'll close with this. This narrative, the one we've just been reading, plunges the listening congregation into a world of danger, brutality, and desperation. It is a world into which a settled congregation does not so easily go. A world largely screened out for a church that has romanticized the Bible. This text invites the congregation to re-enter a world peopled by extreme characters. Frightened king abused laborers, and defiant midwives. I love the way he summarized this. As we take the bread and the cup, we see that that story is still on only more so. So pray with me, and we'll, we'll share the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that you do not let us Run your world. We thank you, Father, that when our broken human nature seeks to slide into your place, you take measures to dethrone us and to become king of all. We see in the story of Israel not just the salvation coming for Israel, but of Egypt too, of all people. That, Father, you will not allow anything to sidetrack what you are doing. We thank you that you have shown in Jesus Christ, an Israelite who suffered, that violence and the powers of people shall not have the final word. That you will undermine all attempts to control your creation. We thank you, God, as as people who have sensed your mercy and have sensed that you are up to something. It's so tempting to to wonder if you're working or where you're working or how you're working. But Father, we pray like these midwives to fear you, to take the bread and the cup and to know the world we live in, to know where true authority and freedom and innocence and purity and all of the things we search for where they lie. Jesus, we thank you for your life, the one which was extinguished and the one which was raised. We find great hope. It's enough to cause us to leave our own lives, to to seek to not preserve ourselves, but to offer ourselves. 
You have given so much for us, God. Teach us how to be your people. Teach us how to be faithful even when it hurts. Help us to share in the, in the true life of Christ, which is evidenced by this bread in this cup. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.